Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 590 with Steve Hers. Steve is going to share how you can form outstanding connections with others. You'll learn one, why you shouldn't take yes for an answer. Two, the small things that make us oh so much more authoritative. And three, how to keep conversations energizing and engaging. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP590. And if you want these insights all the faster, check out the Gold Nuggets, which provides summary insights from Steve and every guest who has gone before him in a quick written email and archive of those emails you can read in under three minutes each. That's called the Gold Nuggets. Now here's Steve's story. Steve Herz is president of the Monti Group, a sports and entertainment talent and marketing consultancy. He's also a career advisor to CEOs, lawyers, entrepreneurs, and young professionals. Prior to joining the Montauk Group, Steve was the president and founding partner at IF Management, an industry leader whose broadcasting division became one of the largest in the space, representing over 200 television and radio personalities. Hers received his bachelor's degree in political science from the University of Michigan and his JD from Vanderbilt University Law School. Steve is involved with several charities, including serving on the local leadership council at Birthright Israel. And Steve is married with two children and lives on the Upper West Side of New York City. Big thanks to Steve for sharing his wisdom with us. And big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. And big thanks to our sponsor, Acorns. Acorns makes it easy to start automatically saving and investing for your future. You don't need a lot of money or expertise to invest with Acorns. In fact, you can get started with just your spare change. Acorns recommends an expert-built portfolio that fits you and your money goals, then automatically invests your money for you. NerdWallet.com, whom I love on these sorts of matters, gives Acorns a whopping 4.7 stars and says, quote, if you want to make the most of your spare change, there's no better place to do that than Acorns. Head to acorns.com slash awesome or download the acorns app to start saving and investing for your future today and we got a legal disclaimer here it may not be representative of all clients tier one compensation provided compensation provides an incentive to positively promote acorns view important disclosures at acorns.com awesome investing involves risk including the loss of principal please consider your objectives risk tolerance and acorns as fees before investing acorns advisors llc acorns is an sec registered investment advisor brokerage services are provided to clients of acorns by acorn securities llc member at finra sipc for more information visit acorns.com here is Steve. Steve, thanks for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thank you for having me, Pete. Well, I'm excited to dig into your wisdom. And for starters, you know, when I hear about folks being agents for sports and media stars, I can't help but think of Jerry Maguire and uh, dramatic experiences of negotiation and high stakes deal making. Can you tell us an exciting story from behind the scenes? Well, you know, there, there, there's quite a few. I would say that, you know, for me personally, I don't know. I mean, I've actually enjoyed seeing a client get a job from a small market and move into a big market. That's been exciting for me. So just thinking back early in my career, there's a guy named Greg Amsinger, who's now the main talent on the MLB network. And he moved to New York from Terre Haute, Indiana. And when he got here, he didn't have a place to live. And he was out on the street and there was a whole controversy over whether or not we had gotten him temporary housing and the network CSTV said, no, you didn't. And I was on a business trip in Seattle. So I said to someone in my office, send him to my apartment with his wife and newborn. 
And that's where he stayed for an entire week. And so the first time I ever met Greg Amsinger was when I knocked on my own door, coming off a red eye from Seattle. And he opened the door with his wife, Erica. This was about 18 years ago. And, and there he was in, in, my, in my apartment. Well, that's cool. Well, <laughs> and, and that's what someone wants in an agent. You know, they're really in your corner and <laughs> doing whatever it takes. So very cool. Well, you've got a fresh book here called Don't Take Yes for an Answer. Intriguing title. What's the story here? So the, the story is this, that I have been an agent, as you know, for almost 30 years now. And I think I've had almost a test tube that I was able to look at over all this time to notice and pay careful attention to what types of people moved ahead in the world and what types of people didn't. And over time, I found that there were two common links that determined the very successful from the people that often just plateaued. And those two qualities were one, they really wanted to get better at their craft, whatever that might be. They were always looking to improve and they were looking for feedback all the time. And it wasn't just lip service. And the second part of it is that they actually did improve and they really improved the way they came across on television, whether it was their authority in terms of their voice, whether it was their energy of how they called a game or did a particular story and how compelling they became and how the audience was able to relate to them. And so the, the book really is about this thought that I had is that if a broadcaster can take these skills and hone them for what I would call public speaking, why can't anybody, a dentist, a doctor, a lawyer, hone their own communication skills and move ahead in the same way? And, and that's how the book came to be. And so then what is it precisely that we're not taking yes for an answer about? <laughs> so basically kind of everything. You know, you think about, you know, maybe your job is different, but most of us will go through a week, a month, a year, and we will hear nothing from our colleagues or from our bosses or clients, even clients that might be dissatisfied with you in my particular business. And you think everything's great. And often, you know, somebody will terminate their relationship with you or quit or fire you. And many of us don't know what hit us. And so... I believe that a lot of us have gotten caught up in this, what I call the echo chamber of yes. And part of that is because we've had great inflation, we've had this participation trophy, and now a lot of HR departments in American businesses, they don't wanna fire people, they'd rather use euphemisms like downsizings or reorgs or riffs. And that person on the other end of it gets caught up in what I call the vortex of mediocrity, and they don't know. And so, you know, that's a long answer to your question, but everybody and everything can hear yes if you don't look out for it. Yeah, but you know, that what reminds me is I've got a friend who's an executive of a, shall we say, mature business line. And and so a part of that is that, boy, every few months, there's another round of, of people that they lay off. And so, and he tries to really be, you know, kind and, and, and diplomatic and, and proactive and, and even breaks the rules a little bit, tells them before he's supposed to tell them, is like, hey, just so you know, your position's not going to exist <laughs> in, in a few months. So you, you probably want to start looking around and see if you can land somewhere else within the organization. And, and he says that when he has these conversations with people, what he's always scared of them asking him is, well, why are you firing me and not the other guy? But they never do. And, and I think that really speaks to kind of what you've called the echo chamber of yes, is that we can get kind of comfortable and maybe don't want to ask that hard question. 
when we probably should. Right. And I would also say that by the time that person is asked that question, even though, like you said, they don't normally ask it, it's too late. You've already been downsized or laid off or reorged and it's too late. So that's why I'm hoping that if people, you know, pick up my book and read it and reorient themselves towards a different mindset, that they don't take yes for an answer on a daily basis or at least a weekly basis or a monthly basis. And then they'll really start seeking out that constructive feedback. That is the difference between often, not every time, but often the person who got laid off and the one that didn't. Well, so maybe let's think about this chronologically. First, how do we psychologically, mentally brace ourselves so that we can handle it? We can handle hearing the tough stuff. Uh, Is there any reframes or perspectives you would share? Yeah, I would. And the, the easiest one, I think, to understand is the idea of going to the doctor, particularly my family. I have a history of colon cancer in my family. So I'm only 54, but I've had four or five colonoscopies already. And I started getting them in my late 30s. And I've had a few tiny little scares, luckily nothing. But, you know, those little tiny things could grow into big things if you don't take care of them. And the thing is, is that you would never in a million years, if you're a reasonably sane person who knows you have a history of whatever, in this case, just colon cancer, you would never not get a colonoscopy. You wouldn't say, oh, well, maybe I won't get it. And at the last minute, someone tells you you have stage four colon cancer, God forbid, nobody would take that chance. And and that's, I think, literally what happens to some people in their career. They never stop and ask How am I doing? How does my quote unquote colon look or my career look? How's my performance look? And ask that question and get that x-ray from their boss or from their friends or colleagues. And if you reframe it in a way to understand that so much of what bad can happen to you in your career is very preventative. It's completely preventative in so many cases that if you reframe it that way, you'll see not only will that be a benefit, but also you're not going to get better unless you're this one in a million person who just gets better on your own, you're not going to get better at your job or at anything if you're not targeting and really trying to understand what your weaknesses are and how you can minimize them or improve upon them. And you think about an athlete or a musician, how is anybody going to get better if they don't practice the things they need to practice? But if we're not being told what to practice and we're not being able to identify them, there's no way. So hopefully that's a really positive reframing for people. Well, no, that really is good in terms of those proactive checks in for feedback are a, a means of preventative maintenance. You, like for the doctor, I mean, we we go to the dentist, we, we get our, our car's oil changed. And when we find out, oh, you know, there's a cavity or there's a, a problem with the, the vehicle, you know, well, in a way it's a bummer. Like, oh, you know, I got to spend some time with the dentist or, or some money with the mechanic. Uh, but it's like, oh, well, I'm glad we caught it early as opposed to late. Uh, I guess one distinction I, I, I'd put there is is that there's there's less of an emotional charge there in terms of if, if Steve, you told me, you know, Pete, you're completely unprofessional. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I didn't know if you and your show were legit. I, I kind of, whatever, whatever the, the, the tough feedback might be. I think it's natural that we would sort of take that much more personally or emotionally than we would if we got the news that, you know, our spark plugs are need to be replaced or there's a cavity. How do you think about the, the emotional dimensions here? Well, first of all, I agree with you. I, I wouldn't really want to hear from anybody that you're unprofessional. I'd want to know why I was unprofessional. And one of the things I talk about is 
the book is called Don't Take Yes for an Answer. It's not don't give yes for an answer. So I'm trying to also change the mindset of it's not my place to tell Pete after the show what he needs to do better. He's not asked me. He's doing really well. He's got a great show. What is he interested in my opinion for? If you came to decide on your own that I had a particular value to you and you thought you wanted to improve and you first reached out to me and said, Steve, thank you for coming on my show. You know, what do you think I could do better? Then you've opened up the door to a conversation, but it's not my place to be your coach. So I think it's first and foremost, the individual's job to seek out the feedback. And also just like it's your job to go to the doctor or get your car inspected, but also find the right people to do it. You want to find people that who you trust and also who actually care about you and you feel have an interest in your growth. Because a lot of people will just say, oh, Pete, your show stinks or Pete, you're unprofessional. That's not valuable. That's not helpful. And a lot of people might just honestly be on an ego trip because they get to tell a big podcast host how he's not that great and why they could take him down a peg. But that's not at all valuable and it's not actionable. So you know, in my book, the second half of my book is it's all about what are the action steps you can take. And what I really think is that a lot of us, in terms of the blind spots of what we could be improving upon, it's the impression we're making on people on an everyday basis. And it falls into one of these three categories. Do you have the right authority? Do you have the right warmth? Are you connecting with people? And are you energizing somebody? And that's where it really comes down to. Well, this reminds me, when you talked about getting the right people, we had a, a guest on the show, Steve Ritter, who mentioned that there's some research that suggests a startlingly large proportion of the variance of when an intervention is successful, whether it's with like a coach or a trainer or a consultant or a therapist or a counselor, uh, it just boils down to sort of the, the chemistry between those two people. And, and in terms of like, do I think Steve is a good guy who cares about me and knows some stuff? Or do I think he's just a, a jerk? <laughs> and, and I'm just not really able to receive what you have to offer, even if it's great stuff. So I found that that intriguing. I think that really resonates in terms of got to find those right people. You know, could you share, is there any uh, intriguing uh, research or studies that you've come across when it comes to uh, this zone of of feedback and not getting enough of it. What have you discovered there as you're putting things together? Well, the most interesting study that I came across was probably, well, there's really two, but they're very related. So I'll share them both with you. One is that there was a study done in 1918 by the Carnegie Foundation. And it's a seminal study that shows that the correlation and the causal relationship between how successful you are professionally and how good you are at the technical part of your job, even amongst like an engineer, is only 15%. So I interpret that data to be, you have to be good at your job, but there's gonna be a lot of other people that are also good at the technical part. And that's not gonna be the differentiator between how you go from just getting a seat at the table to getting to higher reaches of your company or having influence and having clients or a popular show like you do. So what is that 85%? That's one very important study. And the way I see it is that that 85% is the difference between the hard skills and the soft skills. But it kind of goes back to your original question earlier, your kind of funny remark about, you know, well, I don't think you're unprofessional, whatever. This whole idea of soft skills is so misunderstood by people and there's not a lot of language around it. There's not a lot of metrics around it. And you talk about that guy, Steve Ritter, who says, well, if I don't like you or connect with you, I'm not going to really take feedback from you. The reason why is because there's something granular about how you're coming across to other people. And that can be broken down into its smaller parts. 
And so the second study, kind of very consistent with the first one, is that Google has a thing called Project Oxygen by which they hire software engineers. And they hire them based on eight criteria, one of them being how good you are as a software engineer. But of those eight criteria, they only count that eighth among eight. Everything else is a soft skill, even at Google. Okay, well, now I'm intrigued. When you said Google project, I thought you were going to say Aristotle, but here you went and surprised me. What are those eight components? It's, it's a question of, can you lead a team? Can you be a follower? Can you be a fellow? Can you collaborate? Can you take ideas from other people? Are you timely in getting your projects done? Do you take feedback? All the things that I think go into, ironically, you're awesome at your job. My book is about awe. So it's all about what that goes into do you have that A-W-E awe? Okay, well, well let's, let's dig right into it. So authority, warmth, energy, how do we develop those things? Or maybe what are some common ways that we're just squandering <laughs> or, or failing to develop authority, warmth, and energy? Because I think most of us would say, well, yeah, I'm fairly authoritative. I know my stuff. Yeah, I'm a pretty warm, nice guy. Yeah, yeah you know, I'm, I'm energetic enough. What are some of the, the ways that people are really differentiated in terms of like fine with their authority, warmth and energy and, and outstanding? How do we become outstanding? Okay, so I think there's two really small but very significant things that people do to differentiate themselves. One is the person who finishes his or her sentences strongly and believes in what they're saying as opposed to speaking in a sing-song way or that kind of glottal fry and trailing off in your words and belying to yourself and to your audience that you're really not convinced of what you're saying in the first place, right? So that's one thing. And the second thing is people who believe in their message have a certain natural inflection to their voice. And the reason why they have that inflection is because their cadence becomes almost lyrical in nature. There's a real natural variance to their voice in terms of their pitch, their pace, their volume, their, their moving around, their energy. You, you know it when you see it. And they're also pausing very well for effect. And that's where the inflection comes in. And what they're not doing, the most important thing they're not doing versus the other group is they're not using any filler words. People who use filler words, um, like, you know, so, they really compromise their authority. Okay. Well, that's pretty clear there. And can you give us an example of the, the intonation picture of, of good authority versus not so great authority? Well, like I said, it's someone who says, Pete, I'm going to come on your show and I am going to tell you the most important thing your audience has ever heard. It's going to change their life. It's going to be actionable. It's going to be memorable. It's an acronym. And after they listen to it, there's going to be infinite change by your audience. And the next person is going to say, Pete, I, you know, I, I would really like, you know, to have you on. I'd like to really come on your show. I've worked, you know, really hard on this idea. And, you know, I think it has a lot of value. I'm hoping, you know, like you feel the same way. And if, if they listen, you know, I think I, I, I do think they'll get something out of it. Okay, so the vocal pauses are, are the most noticeable in terms of, of that illustration. But then, yes, also the, it, it, I guess it's, what's the perfect adjective here? It's, 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 it's a little timid, like you're, it just, you're just like, a li it's almost like you're a little bit scared. Like if I were to say, 
Steve, I think you're completely wrong. You're like, okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> I guess that's the impression that it delivers there. Well, that's the authority part, because I, I think in a way, if if you, you could be super authoritative, but not warm, and that would be unappealing. So that's the authority piece. Let's hear the warmth piece in terms of, you know, what do professionals need to, to do and not do to have that warmth come across? Well, first of all, any communication, as you well know, it's irrelevant except for how the listener is hearing it, right? And if the listener hears it in a certain way, and that's different from the way that you mean it, then the only thing that matters is how they hear it. So from the perspective of warmth, you wanna tailor your message in a way that you make the other person feel known that this is valuable and important to them, either by speaking from their perspective or like I tried to do earlier, Pete, I wanna come on your show, I wanna tell you this because it's gonna be actionable and it's gonna change your audience's life. Everything is about them, the listener, what you're getting out of it, not about me. Right? So hopefully that connotes a level of warmth. And then we can also connote warmth in many different subtle ways. One thing that connotes warmth is when you're talking to me, part of life is listening and also making you feel attentive. I'm gonna make eye contact with you. I'm gonna answer your question in a way that demonstrates that I listened to what you had to say, that I cared enough to hear what you wanted to tell me. And I'm gonna follow up with something that's consistent, not a non sequitur, for example. And also I'm gonna smile at you when appropriate. I'm gonna have open body language. And as much as possible, I'm gonna to try to turn the conversation in a way so that it's gonna be about you. And all that contributes to warmth among many other things. And then also, as you pointed out earlier, part of it is in your vocal tone. I mean, if you're coming out strong like a bulldog with every aspect of your communication, you're gonna blow people away and not connect with them. Okay, let's hear about energy now. So that's a tricky one. That's probably the trickiest one of all. I'd say energy is really, again, just from the perspective of combining it with warmth, is the only thing that matters about your energy is how am I making you feel? And so, for example, I can be a very high energy guy. And, you know, it just might be, Pete, if I got to know you really well, I might learn that you don't really respond well to high energy. And every time I get too high energy, it actually deflates you. So it would be incumbent upon me to know that when I'm talking to Pete, I got to really modulate that energy. And then I might have another colleague who really responds very well to high energy and I can modulate my energy a little bit differently. Also by listening to you and by really keying myself into what you have to say and by being very attentive to you, that's going to energize you as well because you know I care about you. Well, and it seems in terms of like that that matching and connecting in terms of, of high energy or, or low energy, I, I almost sort of imagine there could be even more nuances and flavors in terms of, of the high energy or the low energy. Like you could be high energy in the sense that you're talking really fast and you're fired up and whoa, you know, or, you know, you could be high energy at a lower pace. Just like I, I've seen some people who it's clear they're really enthusiastic about what they're saying just because of like the way they are moving their eyebrows and smiling <laughs> even if they're not talking a mile a minute it's like oh okay this this guy's pretty fired up about this okay and, and so so that, that that's intriguing that within the the high and low is is one way to think about sort of like the matching and how you're being received are, are there any other kind of nuances or or hues or flavors that you'd you'd put on the energy to us for us to consider I think it's really just about trying to develop a little bit more self-awareness about yourself and really keying into how is 
the person you're talking to or the people you're talking to, how are they responding to you? And trying to make those adjustments in the moment and eventually getting to a point where you have such good habits about the way you communicate and you're reading someone's face or their eye contact or their lack of eye contact or what have you, or their lack of nodding, lack of responsiveness, that you can make those adjustments in the moment. One of the things I say is, it's not just important to read the room, it's also important to read how the room is reading you. Yeah, and are there any sort of telltale indicators you recommend that we uh, be on the lookout for in terms of, ooh, this is a, a thumbs up or a thumbs down indicator based on what I'm seeing with some, some body language or facial expressions or tone? One of the best, best indicators is a lack of responsiveness. So if, if you're talking to someone, and I, I could see you right now, this is a great example of it, is that you're just blinking, barely, and you're not nodding at all. So if this was a real conversation in person, I would just stop. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, 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 it's a, great, it's a great example, actually. It's a great example because if I'm not getting a response from you, then I know that I'm not, it's, it, no, it, it can quickly go from a dialogue to a monologue. And, and that is something that would often deflate people. Nobody wants to be in a monologue, especially in a one-on-one -on -one conversation, not for long. That's intriguing. And I guess it, in that moment, as I was blinking, I was just, <laughs> I was just, I was just waiting for the goods. <laughs> it's like, okay. It, in terms of, it's like, one of the things, I think that's what you said. It's like, one of the things that you should be on the lookout for is like, okay, I'm listening. What is the thing? You're one of the things I was on the lookout for though. <laughs> oh, okay. So just non-responsiveness. And, and so then if you're, if you're just blinking, that's kind of nothing. Part of it is and I guess there's also context associated. If people cross their arms, maybe they're uncomfortable or maybe they're cold. In some ways, like I'm constrained to not move more than an inch away from <laughs> this microphone, which which limits me a bit. Okay, so non-responsiveness is one thing to be on the lookout for. Like they're just sort of doing nothing but blinking. Uh, what are some other, you know, thumbs down or thumbs up indicators? I think you just put your hand on a really good one. Body language is really important not just the arms folded, but if you're talking to someone and you notice that your hips or your shoulders are you know, parallel to theirs and they start moving their shoulders and their hips away from you, that's an indication that you're not someone that is particularly interesting to them and or energizing them. And you know, I think those are kind of the telltale signs. And in addition to, when I talk about non-responsiveness, I mean non-responsiveness from facial nodding perspective, but also from a conversational point of view, if, if they're not responding and saying, hey, you know what, I agree with that, or I don't agree with that, and there's not really a dialogue, that's all the signs you would need, hopefully, to prevent yourself from overstaying your welcome or, or not soliciting or eliciting you know, someone to have a dialogue with you. Okay, so those are the three things we're going for with that authority, that warmth, that energy. And we talked at the beginning about how it's it's very important to ensure that you're you're getting that feedback and you're you're asking for it. And, and so now that we we know sort of what we're shooting for, um, how would you recommend we specifically ask for what we need in the feedback department? Well, I think as I said earlier, I think first and foremost, try to find people that will give you what I call tough love. And when I say tough love, I I mean love, not just the tough. You want to find people that are really invested in you and your future and your growth. And even if they're going to be tough on you, you know it's coming from a place of goodness and really operating in your best interest. And then I think it's just a question of trying to find someone that can analyze you in a way that 
is really accurate. So it shouldn't be hard to find objective qualities about yourself. For example, in the book we talk about, I talked about earlier, these filler words. That's not something that's very subjective. Either you're using a lot of filler words or you're not. So now in this time of the pandemic and we're all home with Zoom and everything's being recorded a lot more than it used to be, you can record yourself and try to be on the lookout for some of these things. And you can look out for, are you someone that is responding well to another person? Are you showing that kind of warmth? Are you smiling? Are you energetic in your communication? And once you can pinpoint those things, then I think you have the basis of the beginnings of some some helpful growth. Well, yeah, certainly. And those ideas associated with recording yourself or, or maybe using an app like Speako, which will automatically you know transcribe and record those is huge. And, and I think it's so fun to be able to, uh, I dork out on this, being able to quantify the results in terms of, oh, hey, I, I had this many filler words per minute last week and now it's, it's lower this week. So that's exciting. Exactly. No, no, I was going to say exactly. You're right. And the other thing I, I offer people, and I think this is a really good trick or hack, if you will, in the book, is that instead of trying to develop all this self-awareness once you figure out, okay, let's say you use too many filler words, hypothetically, of course, let's say that's the case. I don't want you to go trying to automatically stop using filler words. What I want you to do is try to create an environment in your life where you become very sensitive and aware of filler words, because often we're not really aware of how we're using filler words, but we can become very aware of other people using them. So I talk about this thing called hyper external awareness. So whether it's bad body language or filler words or not finishing your senses or any of the myriad things that we all do that kind of compromise our own communication, start noticing it first in others after someone has pointed it out to you. Great. Thank you. Well, uh, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things. I'll say one last thing about authority because we didn't talk about it. It really fits in well right here is I think some of the most authoritative people and persuasive people I met along the way in this process are people that hew to what they call, and I would also agree with them, is kind of a detached authority. They believe what they believe. They own it internally. Their whole communication belies it, but they don't try to sell you on it. And so I guess hopefully I'm going to be a little detached about my own authority about this concept and people have heard enough. Anyway, you know, that's a really great point because I guess if I perceive that you need you know, me to believe you or to buy the product or whatever, that's just, I don't know what the word is, like not reverse psychology or alpha <laughs> stuff, but... It's needy. Yeah. If your product is so good, why do you need me to have it? Like, why are you so desperate for me to buy it? It must be something weak about it that you have to have me get this. It's kind of like played hard to get. <laughs> Seriously. If you're such a great person, why... <laughs> What's that? No, but if you don't mind me, just say one thing. I, I did meet a few people along the way who do play hard to get. They have something so special that you really should want it, and they don't try to sell it at all. And it's very powerful. Cool. All right. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? I love the Oscar Wilde quote, be yourself, everyone else is taken. So it's just a reminder to try to be authentically you every day. And how about a favorite book? I'd say my favorite book, believe it or not, is How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. And it probably had a lot to do with everything I'm doing here from seeing life from another person's perspective. And a favorite tool, something you use to be awesome at your job? I would just say 
honestly is a weak answer, but the iPhone, I, it allows me to not be behind a desk 24 seven, even way before this pandemic. And I think I've been one of these people who's worked remotely for probably the last 20 years to a large extent. And a favorite habit? Every day I'd say for the past 10 years, I have flossed my teeth after having horrible, horrible gum issues. And that habit that I took in 10 years ago has helped me build a lot of other habits, but that's a keystone habit for my whole life. Well, that's an intriguing story right there. So so you started flossing and, and how did that end up turning into additional habits? So like I said, 10 plus years ago, I was told by my dentist that I needed gum surgery and I had been a terrible flosser and just horrible at it. And I begged him to give me one last chance. At the same time, I had read this book called Willpower by a guy named John Tierney. And he had this tip about how to build habits. So I took all the, the tips in the book and just tried to build this habit for three weeks, 21 days. That, that was the trick in the book. And I set an alarm on my, my phone for 9.55 every night that I would have to floss at 9.55. So what ended up happening is I flossed that first night and the second and the third. And now like I can for probably thousands of nights so much. But after doing it at 9.55, I would... First of all, I'd stop eating at that point. If I would ever eat late, I'd stop doing that. Secondly, I started going to bed earlier because the alarm went off at 9.55 and I would get to bed. And then I started getting up earlier. I started working out more regularly. So it had this cascading effect of all these really good things happening in my life. And by the way, to this day, I still never needed the gum surgery. Excellent. And, and are you still flossing at 9.55 or is it uh, just whenever the time comes? 9.55, the alarm still goes off. <laughs> All right. <laughs> That's great. I can't even figure out how to take the alarm off the phone, which is probably a good thing. Well, I'm not going to tell you because it's working for you. Uh, and is a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks? They, they quote it back to you often. Well, now it's don't take yes for an answer, which is kind of funny. People use this on me as a tool. It's, it's become a, a retort from all my friends. If I'm doing something that they don't want to agree with me, don't take yes for an answer. Even my kids are using it on me now. That's good. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? Just to my website, www.stevenstevenhers.com. And they can download a free eight-page guide about the book and all the social media and everything I've done, writing, podcasts, et cetera. Okay. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? I, I, I would say just don't take yes for an answer in your own life. However that manifests for you, have what I would call aggressive humility about yourself. Realize that all of us, and by the way, I wrote the book and there's a million things I need to improve upon. So have that level of aggressive humility and know that if you really want to reach your potential, every day you should be striving to get better. And the best way to do it is to seek feedback. All right, Steve, this has been a treat. Uh, I wish you lots of luck in all the ways you're not taking yes for an answer. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I really love Steve's point about not taking yes for an answer. Because yes, can feel so good. Yes, you're awesome. You're great. You're wonderful. And this reminds me, you know, we had this guest on the show, Justin Jones Fosu. And at one point, I was doing a lot of speaking on college campuses, and we were represented by the same agency, Campus Speak. They're awesome. I remember once I, I saw him speak, and I was like, oh, man, Justin, that was really awesome. That's great stuff. So much energy. So much fun. And he said, you know, Pete, thank you. I appreciate that. And, and you know, what's really most helpful for me is if you could tell me how I could approve since, you know, you're a professional speaker too. And, you know, you're watching me paying good attention. I'd love to hear your perspective. And so I gave him some 
constructive feedback points. And it was funny, I was a little uncomfortable asking or, or telling him he was not at all uncomfortable asking me. And he said, hey, thanks, I really appreciate that. You know, I've actually heard that a couple of times before. And that really makes me think I am all the more likely to change that part of the speech. It's like, right on, man. And uh, sure enough, Justin was one of the top performing speakers year after year in the agency. And I don't think it is a coincidence. So anyway, that just kind of reminds me, sort of whenever you're hearing praise or, or about to take yes for an answer, you might check yourself, hmm, is this an opportunity to ask for that feedback to become all the better at coming across well with all the more authority, warmth, and energy? Good stuff from Steve. If you want to check out those show notes, those transcripts, those links to items we've referenced, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep590. I hope you'll push subscribe if you haven't already. You can catch our next guest automatically. No risk of missing Brian Robinson. Boy, he is one of the foremost authorities on workaholism and dealing with stress and overwork and exhaustion and just feeling a whole lot better and managing that in a healthy, positive way. Hope to catch you there and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.